Hey, this is Dan, just dropping you a quick line before you start this episode to let you know a couple of things. What you're about to listen to is one of the classic best of episodes of Assorted Goods in its older format. And by older format, I mean the sandbox and completely disorganized style that Assorted Goods was for its first few years of existence. Now, since then, the feed has been cleaned up and there's 12 of these classic episodes. And you should know, if you're a new listener, that these episodes are not really what the show is now. But they're still good and they're still worth listening to. But just be warned that if you're looking to get into assorted goods as it is now, that you probably want to go to the latest episode in your feed. Start listening from there. Throughout the episode, you might hear certain things get mentioned, like the website or the social media. Now, those have changed. So don't go chasing those websites or links after the episode. Go to these ones instead. The website has now disinformed.ca, CA for, you know, Canadians like me. And that's where you can find all the assorted good stuff that is mentioned in these episodes. You can find the source lists and additional information. They have all moved to there. In terms of emailing, you can email me now with the new email, dan at disinformed.ca. And if you want to follow on social media, Twitter and Instagram, the new handles are at disinformeddan. And hey, look, all three of those are kind of similar with each other, creating some sort of uh, continuity. People tell me that's important. But anyways, whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, I hope you enjoy this classic episode of Assorted Goods. And then I hope you subscribe to the show and come along for the ride with the new episodes as well. And as always, thank you for listening and enjoy. The brain, a pulpy mass of cells and fibers, is the center of the network of fibers that make up man's nervous system. One of the topics that I always seem to be drawn back to is the human brain. So often I'll think of an idea for an episode, start digging into it, and then suddenly I'm writing an episode that's mostly about what's going on between our ears. But for all the brain talk I've gotten into in the past here on Assorted Goods, there's still so much about these complicated weird-looking, mushy human computers that I don't know, because in reality, there's still a lot that even the experts have yet to learn. But the brain fascinates the hell out of me, and I love having the chance to learn more about it and hear new ideas of how to think about, well, how we think. So when I had the chance to talk to someone who knows a ton about the brain, I was, of course, absolutely thrilled. That's right. This episode, I have a guest. Seriously, I do. Here, look. I'm Nicole Tatro, a neuroscientist, author, meditation teacher, and I love talking about the brain. Yep, Dr. Nicole Tatro dropped by the podcast. She loves talking about the brain, and I love hearing about it, so it's a pretty good fit. We had a fantastic discussion about getting back to normal after COVID, the minds of gifted individuals, and our misconceptions about a group of people who make up about one-fifth of the population. We also talked about anxiety, imposter syndrome, oh boy, meditation, and so much more. This was a long interview, and I'm lucky she hung in there with me despite my rambling, but I really hope you, the listener, enjoy this talk as well. Dr. Tetro has a new book called Insight into a Bright Mind, a neuroscientist's personal stories of unique thinking. And I really mean this. It's truly a great read, and Dr. Tetro was an awesome guest to have on the podcast. Now, I don't want the intro to take up too much of your time, so real quick, if you like Assorted Goods, you know, subscribe to the show, tell a friend, leave it a review, etc., etc., and email the podcast at talkbox at assortedgoodspod.com 
If you have any questions, comments, feedback, ideas for an episode, you name it, don't be shy. And now, without further pandering for attention, I give you my conversation with Dr. Nicole Tetro. In the conscious state, much behavior is based on learning. This podcast is created in association with Verboten Productions and the No Phony Podcast Network. To learn more and find more great content, visit ForbotenProductions.com and NoPhonyNetwork.com. You know, welcome to the podcast. Uh, welcome to Sort of Goods. Thank you so much for taking the time to to sit down with me and then to talk talk about the brain. That's one of my favorite topics. I find a lot of my um, a lot of my episodes sometimes I I pick a topic and then next thing I know I'm I'm into something brain related and and that's just where it always ends up. It all comes back to the brain. So again, thanks for taking the time to to sit down and talk with me today. Thanks for having me, and I'm super excited. First of all. How are things going for you? How are you? How are you sort of navigating the the current state of affairs? You know, now that things are reopening and and the world's sort of dare I say the word normal. How 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 are you sort of managing at the moment? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I'm in flux with a lot of the different transitions we're in. Um, you know, California had a lot of challenges um, throughout the pandemic. Now we have a a nice surplus of the vaccination. A lot of us are vaccinated here. So um, getting back to normal, normal quote unquote activities has been um, enjoyable um, to see family. And at the same time, um, a bit overwhelming um, between still doing a lot on um, Zoom and different things like that. So it's sort of navigating definitely a new territory. Um, you know, and then when I think about COVID globally, what we're challenged with, you know, I think that, um, we're nowhere near out of the dark. I mean, I think there's a lot of optimism we're looking at, but, you know, um, you know, countries like Brazil and India really are having quite high, um, COVID numbers. And so, you know, I think there's a global responsibility that we need to make sure these other countries get the vaccination and the services they need. Yeah, it's very strange to to remember sort of that that few weeks in March last year where we almost the whole world all went into the we all took the plunge sort of together as it all happened and then yeah, now that it's the other end of it some of the world is like, you know, I, I watch, you know, sports events in, in the States and they go, well, we got 16,000 people in the stadium. And I still think, how is that possible? And then, you know, it is very uneven the way we're stepping back out of it into, into normalcy, so to speak, that, that, you know, exactly that there's still nations struggling and probably still have a very long road ahead. And then other parts of the world are like, well, we're concerts and, you know, and restaurants and sports events and everything's back to normal here. It's, it's, I, I agree with you. Say that's that's very it's it's difficult to navigate that you know it, and to sort of feel normal when there's still so much that isn't out there like that. That's it's, it's a it's a it's a definitely a unique situation we've all been through this past year. It's you know it's uh it's it's going to be the cause for a lot of documentaries and podcasts. I'm sure someday. Yeah, and as it is currently on a lot of podcasts. And the other thing I want to say too is that for people who are able to go to games and concerts and things like that, do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you've been sequestered. The performers, the athletes need you. 
you know, yeah. so it's, it's a way of, of sharing and celebrating. So, um, as well as having awareness that other areas need great support, you know, and I think that to feel good about coming out of, I, I kind of call it like an unfreeze, right? right. Um, to feel good about it. Now, I guess I'm just sort of chasing the thread in my head here a little bit as a, you know, as a neuroscientist, is there, is there something to be said about, about this sort of reacclimation period? Like, you know, for, to spend a year, like you said, you know, everything's on zoom and working from home and, and, you know, locking down and never going anywhere. Is there something to be said about sort of the social readaptation to, to getting used to being around each other? Oh, you're totally right. And, um, I don't think you need to have a PhD to know that. <laughs> I think instinctively you get yeah. that. Um, and, you know, what I want to say about that in particular is that the social interaction has been so, you know, it's a yin and yang. For some people who are introverts or amniverts, part of the pandemic actually has been quite restorative in the sense that they have been able to really kind of flourish and do their own thing um, as long as they were safe. And then I think there's the other aspect where people regardless need social connection. Right. So we know one of the key pieces for social con for longevity is social connection and having at least three very strong social bonds. And especially for adults and kids transitioning, you know, when you think about the lack of social engagement, you know, I talk about um, mirror neurons in the brain and how we perceive one another. And you and I are doing that on Zoom, but it's not the same as if we were in person right. to see the micro expressions to, you know, because also I'm kind of looking at myself. And so there's this like different um, socialization we've been doing. And also it's in 2D. It's not 3D, you know. Yeah, it's, it feels like a bit of a new frontier in that sense, right? That that there's really never been a point in human history where, where we only ever interacted with with sort of exactly that two dimensional representations of other human beings, and and it, it it gets the wheel spinning to me that do we still have that same sort of mirror mirroring you know consistency, and do we socialize the same way? Like you know, you can see a person, but there's something about in person that that really feels more, I guess, natural or or, or correct i i don't i don't know what the word is for it is it, you know is that something that that you think is is a, a challenge you know again as we readapt yeah so one thing that you talked about actually in your sleep um podcast that kind of relates to this in the sense is that screens are going to illuminate different types of frequency they're going to kind of cause a different type of overstimulation. Whereas when you're in real time in real person, you could see the micro expressions, you could pick up on it. And through zoom that is lost. Right. The other thing is that recently we've been going out with masks. So we only have people's eyes to make sense of. Right. Um, and so if we're not, you know, kind of trained to decode the eyes constantly, that's going to be creating a new muscle. And then the other thing is that really, um, there was this like innate fear of other humans, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you have the virus. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it was kind of many layering where people kind of went into this 
um, social recluseness. And so what we know, like when people are socially isolated, that eventually they feel symptoms of, you know, longing and, and there is a, a feeling of lack. And there's also the challenge where, um, they have loneliness, you know, and so loneliness can feed into other types of symptoms. And so it's really important that, um, as soon as you're vaccinated and it's safe, you know, to get out there and rekindle those interactions. And, um, you know, you also talked a bit about neuroplasticity in that episode. And, and that's the amazing thing about the human brain is that we already have the pathways in our brain designed for mirroring one another. So even though that muscle has been, um, not as used this last year, it doesn't take too long for a simple interaction to activate those neurons and that mirroring again. Um, it would be interesting to consider, even think about the lack thereof, you know, that perhaps like there could even be a higher rate of reward in the brain (laughs) as you mirror someone else, um, because it's been missing. And, and, you know, you were saying about introverts adapting so well to the situation and, and I'm a, I'm a pretty much textbook introvert. I, I can spend a few days not interacting with anybody and, and feel fine. And yet I found with COVID, right before it started was was when I started to sort of get do force myself and do a better job of getting out into the world a little bit. You know, I, I started going to yoga classes alone. I started doing work from for for this podcast. I would go around the corner to a little a little bar and grab a small table and a pint of beer and a and a notebook and just research and write notes on my own, which was always a big step for me to do anything alone was very frightening. And then just a few months of doing this, the next thing you know, it's COVID. And a year later, I think, yeah, it's been nice at times to be at home, but I, I don't know if it's sort of maybe, a you know, we've all had the chance to reevaluate in this past year, but but now I all I can think is I really want to get out into the world and be around people. Yeah, I love that you have that, um, you know, that intuitive sense within yourself. And I think the thing, you know, that you're hitting upon is we're energetic beings, right? Like, we share spaces, we share, you know, as you're getting a cup of coffee, you have a room of people getting coffee with you. Mm. So again, there is a communal aspect where even though you're alone, perhaps focusing or, or say you're getting a pint of beer, you're focusing on your work. There are people in the room where you feel this isn't so lonely. We're, we're all working towards something. And I think, um, when you're sequestered and you're forced into that, you know, it makes you really think about what happens when we have prisoners go into solitary confinement. Yeah. What happens when we pull mothers and put them in prison away from their children? Right. You know, and it makes you think about the, the effects that we create in our society and that perhaps maybe we can have you know, ways to kind of work through, um, reformation and, Mm. and integrating people, you know, one of the biggest challenges that people who've been in prison struggle with is reintegration in society, right? Because they've been isolated and otherized and, you know, they hadn't been trained the skills to 
communicate in the current state and environment. And so I think, um, I don't know, I think it's been a really huge awakening for people to kind of, um, think about how can I build more positive relationships and be a part of that. And I think it'll be interesting as like you said, there we're, we're, there's still a lot more to work through to get back to anything normal. And, and a lot of countries are still going through this crisis on their own and, and, you know, fighting through it in their own way and we need to support them. But uh, it, also to think a little bit, you know, people maybe in your field in neuroscience or, or in psychology and stuff to, to once we sort of get the, I don't know what the better word is to use, but the, the autopsy on this past year of, of what has it actually done to people socially? What, you know, are, is there an increase in, in anxiety conditions or social disorders or, you know, as much as the brain, the brain can, has that neuroplasticity and can change that way. What are sort of, what are there going to be the, the long-term effects or like the hangover of, of this whole experience? Yeah. Um, you raise a really good point and preliminary research has shown, you know, that there's been increases in, um, you know, in China and populations where there's been increased depression and mm. thoughts of suicide, right. um, due to the isolation. There's also been, um, increase in, you know, anxiety, um, you know, studies at Caltech have found that. And so the residual, I think is something really important to consider when we think about trauma, right. Is that, you know, um, as we're coming out of this, now we're on the other side of trauma's resilience, kind of resetting back after a major event that was challenging or difficult. Um, But regardless, you know, people have been in patterns of fear and anxiety that lead to greater rates of depression and anxiety. Um, And so I do think that, you know, what I highlight a lot is it's definitely neuro-individual. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's a lot of neuro uniqueness that happens, how individuals respond and whether or not they have the inner resources and support. And on top of it, um, there's also going to be, like you said, perhaps m- groups and different societies that have a greater effect depending on the ability of resources. Right. Um, right. And one thing that, uh, as I, as I eventually get to what I was supposed to lead into off the start, but um, something from your book that, that has been really poignant. And, and, you know, when you're talking about the masks and all that, and as we readjust that story that you included in your book about, about the man in San Francisco who committed suicide and, and they found the note and all he, in his note, he said he wouldn't have jumped if anybody along his way had smiled at him. And even I noticed now, I, I, you know, I, if I'm ever say walking down a street and I'm not wearing a mask and you know, it's a, I do, I keep my distance around somebody, but even that, that, that the simple social cue of, of to see a person and to just smile at them seems to also maybe be something that might get lost along the way here that, that you can't see people smiles if they are smiling at you. And maybe as we get back into it to, to just be generally friendly with strangers seems to maybe be one of the things that's getting a little lost in the sauce as we, as we get back into it, is that going to lag a little bit as well? That, that just smiling at a person might take people time to get used to again. I, you know, I, I know there's no real answer. I'm just, I, you know, this is just my scrambled egg brain coming out. No, right I, I love that. And I think it's a beautiful message for your listeners to hear. 
um, that you have all the capability to, to create a smile for someone and right. to be just a space of lightness. And it was interesting you say that because I walk in a highly dense neighborhood in, in Los Angeles right. and we've all been going, we've all been doing walks. And a lot of us kind of would start just doing peace signs to each other, <laughs> like, like peace, we're in this man. Um, and then, you know, it was so funny. I was walking, it was about two weeks ago when the mask mandate was kind of mm. released um, and it, the CDC said it was okay. And people were walking and this one woman smiled at me and I smiled back and she said, I could finally see your face, <laughs> you know? And um, so I think that in small communities or, you know, in the places you're in, um, you know, to offer that softness, I mean, sometimes we're human and, <laughs> and, you know, we're going around in our own head about perhaps something that's right. we have a story going on and also offer yourself compassion when you maybe forget to smile. Like right. it, it's okay. Um, get, get it next time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, of course, uh, th that's, that's my very loose segue. Such a, such an expert interviewer. I am here to, to get to the point that I was supposed to right away. The reason that I, I wanted to have you on the show and, and that we worked this out was because you've written a, an excellent book. Um, I swear to, to my listeners, I'm not just being courteous to, to the author as a guest. The book you've written is called insight into a bright mind. It's a neuroscientist, personal stories of unique thinking. This is the, this book. I have to first say for myself, I don't have kids. My family is almost young person less. I, I'm probably the youngest person in my family and I'm almost, I'm turning 30 in about six weeks. So, uh, hmm. but this book is, is a, is a beautiful and, and wonderful look into the minds of, of young people of, of all different varieties. And, and also even as someone who doesn't have kids and doesn't really interact with a lot of children in this life, I found it incredibly valuable um, in terms of thinking about my own life and thinking about people that I've known and experiences that I had growing up. For my listeners, th this book dives pretty heavily into, uh, I'm going to try to describe it. I may have you put in a little addendum here at the end of it, but you dive pretty heavily into into the aspects of of what we were what you've mentioned already neurodiversity neuro individuality um the you know the the aspects of of a young mind for people who are and this is a term that i had actually to be honest had never heard before before i read your book i had never heard the term 2e or twice exceptional before i read this book i learned that here it's it's a pretty central aspect of of what you write about in the book um, can you, can you explain, you know, as, as though someone just like me, who's never heard the term two E or twice exceptional, what that is and, and, and sort of some of the indicators and, and just generally, what should we know about, about that, um, that grouping of people? Yeah. So, um, twice exceptional refers to, um, an individual who, um, is gifted and also has a learning difference. So they're known to have exceptionalities. And so a learning difference, you know, can show up, um, is a fact of dysgraphia where somebody has challenges with writing. Um, they may have challenges with auditory processing, um, other types of sensory processing as well. And, or it can be individuals who are, um, ADHD 
or on the autism spectrum, um, where basically um, when I did the research, it's about 20% of our population fits into this umbrella. Um, so that's about one in five kids in the classroom, one in five adults in the boardroom, um, one in five people in the grocery store. Right. Um, where their brain wiring um, is unique based on their development and their genetics. And so standard school and education um, may not fit because they are unique learners. Right. Right. And, and that's something that I sort of just to, you know, for, for anybody who reads it, the, the, this book, is, is great for, for anybody who's a parent or an educator. Uh, you know, I, I found that there was a lot of really eye-opening concepts that you, you presented it about, you know, again, one in five, that's not an insignificant number by any means. That's, you know, in my family, that's one of us at least, you know, and it's, it's, it's to think about, you know, standardized schooling and, and, and all that, and the way everything is sort of, you know, I know, especially in America, I, I'm here in Canada and, and we don't have it quite to the extent in America, standardized testing, you know, to, to put every child and, and mark them against the same standard and then just figure that's sort of the determining factor of, of their value as students. And, and then, of course, what that plays into when you go off to, to secondary education or university or college or whatever the case is. Uh, what are some of the misconceptions that you, you think that people may have about, about this group, about TUI or, or anybody who, who falls under this sort of umbrella of, of neurodiverse or neuroindividual uh, um, people? Well, there are a number of con, um, misconceptions. Um, one of the biggest things is when kids are identified in the United States as being gifted, there's a misunderstanding that it, if you are gifted, um, you may not have a learning difference. And oh. To get back to it, you know, we use the word learning disabled um, because that's what gets services. I prefer right. the word learning difference because um, I really think it's just a different way of processing information literally um, yeah. through your brain. And um, so a lot of misconceptions happen because these kids aren't going to be your standard kids in the classroom. They can um, test all over the map so they could have a an A in one area and literally C's and F's in others um, because perhaps their, um, their gift or their learning disability could interfere with that. Right. Um, another misconception um, is that some of these kids struggle with um, sensory and emotional regulation based on their brain wiring. And so these kids and even adults, you know, could have um, emotional dysregulation, sensory dysregulation, where um, they can get tagged as kind of having bad behaviors, where in fact they are um, struggling at the source, they're in pain. Um, and so I always talk about defining the origin of where the, so the quote unquote bad right. behavior is. Right. Um, a lot of these kids could be misclassified and misidentified as um, lazy and unmotivated when that could be due to two different things. Um, the fact that we are individual learners, um, which is what neuroscience studies are uh, showing, but more in particular that if a child isn't engaged with material, 
meaning at their proximal zone of learning, that sweet spot for learning, if they're either trying to learn information that's too challenging for them or too difficult, they're not going to be engaged with it. Um, and so often finding the right level of engagement is, is critical for these types of kids. They, um, can be disruptive if, if things are bored, boring for them, um, they could zone out. Um, and so a lot of these kids kind of get boxed in where they can't really, where, where they have challenges working in a system because they don't fit, um, standard school practices. Right. And, and, you know, just again, to sort of reiterate for my listeners, I can only sort of approach the the topics of this book and and all this stuff from my own individual perspective. And again, like I, I, I'm not a parent myself, but for anybody who, who is a parent or is, or is planning to be a parent or is an educator or works with young people, the, the ideas in your book are to me, they, they make so much sense. <laughs> I mean, they really, the more I read, the further I got through, the more I thought like, yes, like this, this is, is so there's so many ideas that are, that you put forward that are all about exactly that, that every person, there is no standard model of learning. There is no standard for, for anybody. And, and if you're somebody who has kids or if you're the way I read the book was starting to make myself think about my own life and think about experiences that I had when I was in school growing up. And, and why did I always, you know, why I remember being in a class and I just could not focus. What was, what was going on with my wiring, you know, and, and so much that I got out of reading it was, was exactly that, that it, it made me rethink that maybe you weren't a bad student. I always say I was a terrible student. I, you know, I, even when I went to university, I, I missed a lot of classes and I, I was a terrible studier. I was, I was a very bad student. And it, this book made me almost try to forgive myself a little bit that, you know, maybe you just weren't in the right environment. Maybe you, you weren't reached, you know, you weren't in the right material. You weren't in the right program that it's not that you aren't capable. It's that you didn't find at that time, the, the, the right environment, the right material, the right sort of surroundings to nurture whatever is, is between my ears. So even if, even if, you know, as an adult to read this book and, and to, and to think about that, uh, those parts of my life and even right up to right now, you know, I, I sit down to do something. I'm like, why can't I just focus? Why can't I just, why can't I just make a whole podcast episode in a day and put it out and, 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 and be productive. So one thing that, you know, I'm really interested in is creativity. And mm -hmm. one thing that I want to talk to you about in terms of your brain okay. is that what I talk about with these kids, with, kids and adults who tend to be um, twice exceptional or have these exceptionalities um, is that when you're in your creative brain, that's a very different network happening than when you're doing executive functioning. Okay. And so when you're doing executive functioning, that's kind of start to finish that regulation, that motivation, that focus. And when you're in a creative process, you're in a different brain network called the um, default mode network, the brain network that is going on while you're literally dreaming and when you're meditating. And when you're in that brain network, you're kind of making unconscious connections that are happening. And so you're in a process 
of figuring it out in an authentic, natural way. So you may feel as though you're spaced out. You may feel that you're not doing anything, but your brain is actually working in the background on these sort of things. And when we know, when we give ourselves the time and space for that creativity to happen, that all of a sudden things click in, that that executive functioning hits right in like, oh, this is where I wanted to talk about X, Y, and Z. And and that flow and that creative synergy happens. And so, um, you know, a lot of things that I, I do talk about for kids that tend to be part of this exceptional group is the fact that they are operating kind of on a different brain on a series of different brain networks. Um, and their flow states are very different. And so, um, to give yourself a little bit of comfort, um, to say, I'm in the process, Dan is in the process. And if it takes me five weeks to get it done, it's my process. Like, um, Granted, we need deadlines and I understand all of that, but I think there's also to kind of bring in that compassion that when you're in creative flow, um, it takes time. And is that something that can be sort of, you know, in the element of, of neuroplasticity and, and all that, one of the, one of the you know, aspects of talking to you that I was really interested in was because again, I don't have kids of my own and all that is, is to be a bit selfish about it. I, I'm turning 30 this year, so I have that. I don't know if it's like a biological clock thing of like, well, your life's, you, you know, this is it now you're, you're 30 and this is, you are who you are and nothing's ever <laughs> going to change a little bit. Is, is that something that, you know, that people can, can sort of open their minds to a little bit that you, you know, if it takes me eight weeks to make a podcast episode, can I work on that? It, can that be improved? Will there be, can I work towards a day where sometime I'll go, you know what? Yeah, that used to be the creative process, but now I've got it. You know, is there hope for people like me is, I guess, my question. Well, there's always hope (laughs) and there's always neuroplasticity and growth. So um, it's so funny when I was starting out my career in in neuroscience and I was an undergraduate, um, you know, I had taken my very first neuroscience course and it was like, the brain can never change. And it was this idea, like there's very few areas of neuroplasticity. It's in the hippocampus and, you know, and, you know, it was just this and the olfactory bulb. Other than that, you're, you're, you're stuck is who you are. (laughs) And, um, what we found out and what studies have been showing through brain imaging in, um, and plasticity is that basically, the frontal cortex, the area you're talking about that does that executive functioning, that regulation of emotions and motivation and reward that develops all the way through our mid thirties. Um, and we know that actually, um, we can even manip- we can even grow that part of the brain even more through, um, training with things like meditation, um, And so we know that meditation rewires the mind where, um, it activates, um, you know, Genesis in, um, the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. I'm going to get very specific, um, which is a part of the frontal cortex. That's very important for, um, mood regulation, motivation, emotional, um, saliency. So understanding what emotions mean, um, very, very important for our, um, you know, getting tasks done, staying motivated, um, 
kind of being more, you know, more peaceful and equanimity, you know, having equanimity. Um, and so, no, you have the ability to kind of rewire your mind. Um, the other thing we know about that we've been kind of fed a false story is the idea that you can train your brain or yourself within 20 days. And science is showing that that's actually false. Um, they did a study with um, college students where they identified um, looking um, where they had to identify and say, I want to change one behavior um, and make it an automatic behavior. And they had right. individuals do something all the way from 15 minutes, you know, run 15 minutes a day to drinking a glass of water. And they found that the average was 66 days. Um, and in that study, they found that depending on how challenging the task is, that you could train yourself as quickly as 18 days all the way to 256 days. Wow. Wow. And, and I think I, I know people, <laughs> it's like when New Year's happens and they go, uh, you know, everyone goes, oh, I'm going to go to the gym. And they say, you know, everybody quits by about two weeks. And, and I feel like that's sort of the, the perception that people have about change and, and habit formation is exactly that, that there's a standard sort of, oh, if you want to do this, it's as simple as, as just, you know, do it for three weeks and you'll be changed forever. That, that again, you know, so much of what you talk about in your book is that, that, that there is no standard sort of neural, you know, wiring or processing, or there's, there's nothing about any, every person's brain that can be boiled down to a simple program like that, that, you know, maybe it's going to take you longer to form a habit than somebody else might, but that's okay. And that, you know, this, there's, it's very, it's much more forgiving is, is one of the many things I would praise your, your book about. It's much more, the, the, the approach to, to everybody's individual brain is, is much more exactly that it, it's not so rigid and, and it doesn't seem to treat people like exactly that. Well, you know, if you can't do it within this many hours or days, then, you know, it creates that anxiety in people that like, well, the program said I had three weeks, I should be completely different. And I'm not, what does that mean? Am I something wrong with me? Did I fail? Did I do all that? It's that I love that study that, that, you know, that it can take, it can take anybody a very long time to change. And, and, but that's, but that's okay that you can forgive yourself and, you know, and, and use your available resources to get onto that. That's great news that there's hope for people like me. Cause I, there's hope for all of us, even right, including right. myself. And, and I mean, I think the other thing too, is that, um, you know, from what I know is that when you do intention, you know, I do a lot of intention setting yeah. is that an intention is something that you kind of focus on. Um, but it's not, it, but it's not something that has to happen. It's like, I'm putting this out as an intention and when you focus on a very specific behavior, like one small thing, if you're saying, you know what, in my podcast, what I want to do is have all the edits done within a week, right. you know, and like you focus on a very, because I'm not a podcaster, so I cannot tell you what to do. Right. <laughs> um, but I'm just saying, if you focus on a very specific behavior, not the whole overall thing has to change, but one little thing then that takes you to the next step and then the next step. And I think, you know, we focus so much on um, these ideas that we have to change ourselves. And when we step back and 
and we could say, well, wait, what my really great strengths are is I think of really complicated topics. And when I think of these complicated topics, I really investigate them and like to go down a rabbit hole. And that's my process. And sort of like enjoy and say, oh, this is me. I have to read eight different studies to understand this. And that's, you know, and, um, and I think it's okay, you know, to, to, if you could catch yourself where you are in your process. Right. And, and that's something that I think, um, again, you know, with that, that looming round number birthday coming up in a few weeks that the last six months or so I spent a lot of time and I, I, and thinking about sort of exactly that idea that, you know, I, I was a, I was a sports kid growing up and I had no real creative endeavors, even though I come from, you know, my, my father is a writer, my mother is an artist, my, my brother and my sister are both very artistic, creative people. And then there was me who was all sports, no creativity. And of course, in my late 20s, I discovered I want to try podcasting. And now I, I write and I, and I do all sorts of different creative things. But I didn't find those until I was about 27. And so the worry I think I've had a few times in the last year and, and six months or so now is exactly that, that is it too late? Like, did, you know, is, am I limited by the fact that I should have been this creative when I was a kid and then I could have nurtured it all the way up to now or, and all that. And I, I think it's very reassuring to know that, that you can pick something up and, and your brain will sort of work with you and to be patient and, and, and all that. And, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not, you aren't exactly who you are right now forever. You're not stuck that way. You can sort of nurture these, these new habits and new processes and all that. And, and uh, I think to hear it from somebody who, who is very qualified on the subject of the brain, it's really reassuring. I, I have to say. Well, also, I want you to kind of transition something in your thinking to recognize that sports is actually being in sports is actually highly creative. Um, You have to use a lot of muscle, depending on what the sport and literally brain muscle and physical muscle, um, depending on what the sport is, you know, you have to have your teammates, you have to imagine how's your teammate going to react to, let's say you're playing basketball, you know, me throwing the ball to them. You have to imagine and envision getting that basketball into the hoop, you know, so, um, there's actually a lot of creativity in sports that I think that um, we always try to make it an either or. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, you have to remember that some individuals are physically and mentally built where they need to move more. Yeah. And, and, and that's actually healthy for them. And so for you, you know, the most important thing is, is going from your strengths and your passions. Um, and no matter what, there's going to be a learning curve. Um, it doesn't matter. You know, I love to write. I also like to write poetry. That's very different than science writing. And, and, and so it's like you, it's, it's a different muscle. And, um, and so I think it's like, to not cut yourself off. That's, that's the biggest thing that I really want that mesh message across in my book is to not cut yourself off, to recognize the things that are your innate strengths and build from that and go with where your passions are. Because if you're doing something you're passionate about, you get that reward circuitry, you get that positive neurochemical of dopamine, you get the endorphins, you get 
um, that emotional balance and regulation. Right. Your, your brain's ready to work with you through things you, you enjoy, <laughs> really. Yeah. And, and you know what? I love that you just, this is an accidental perfect segue because this morning I'm waking up and I'm, I'm unhealthily starting my day by scrolling through things on the internet, which mm. I know not the greatest, you know, I even did an episode about phone addiction and, and boy, have I changed. <laughs> um, but I found this great story and I, and I, it was a little serendipitous cause it's, it's perfect because this, um, this is a story I found about a, a, a woman by the name of Jillian Lynn. And she was a famous, uh, I guess, a, a Broadway, uh, dancer and a choreographer. I, I, I'm not as cultured, so I, may, I hadn't heard of her before, but there's a story, and I'm not sure if you've heard this before, that when she was seven years old in the 1930s, which is, I mean, long before a lot of diagnoses that, that we may understand better now, she apparently was an awful student and, and couldn't sit in class and couldn't uh, focus and was constantly getting out of her chair. And I guess her mother took her to her doctor and the doctor talked with her and did some assessments and asked her questions and then said to her, you know, I'm going to leave the room and I'm going to speak to your mother for a moment. And as he leaves the room, he turns on the radio and he leaves and goes to speak to the mother. And when they come back into the room, Jillian is, is dancing up a storm around the doctor's office. And he stops and goes, looks at the mother and apparently went, oh, there's your problem right there. She needs to be in a dance school. And they went, what? Well, what do you mean? And, and, you know, you know, 80 years later, she's, she's, she's Dame Jillian Lynn now. She's, she's got every, a whole illustrious career in the world of dance, all because this doctor in the thirties, long before a lot of understandings of the human brain looked at her as a child and said, well, she just needs a different setting. So, you know, to, to draw back to that sort of that neuro, that, you know, two E individuals and uh, that neurodiversity like that, you know, one thing I just wanted to make sure I touched on with you is, is, what are, what are some approaches, you know, if this is one in five of people, then what, what are some of the approaches that whether you're dealing with somebody young or, or an adult that you can sort of employ to, to nurture them? What, what, what can, what can the four out of five of us do to, to help nurture the, the environment for, for two E individuals? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. And I love the story you shared um, because that, really hits the nail. My mentor actually wrote his, I think one of his first essays in his book was about her. Oh, um, okay. was, <laughs> so it's, a, it's a great like circular. And I think that um, that exactly is to identify where the strengths are and allow the child to lead you to their strengths and nurture those strengths. Because when you build an individual based on their true abilities and their capabilities, everything else seamlessly happens. Whereas when you're trying, so, you know, that example is in dance, but that could be, you know, for a kid, you know, who loves to draw, you know, say they have challenges where, um, you know, writing, writing an essay is challenging but they're a very good artist, have them storyboard it first through drawing. So kind of coming from a very creative way where they can show what's going on inside their mind, because, you know, in education, we have these boxes of how written production and communication needs to happen. And when we kind of open up Pandora's box of the possibilities of written production and communication and, and, individual neurobiology and physiology, when we see the whole individual, we're better to help guide them, um, through their gifts. 
um, rather than, you know, we don't want a child where they're always trying to have to blast through a wall. We want to help them find ways to go around and over and, and, um, and find different pathways. So there's not so much resistance. So when you're seeing that resistance rise, ask them, what about this is challenging? What would make it easier? What would be a natural way that you would want to do this? And is that, and is it common for, for, um, whether, whether people are classified as, as 2E or, or not, is it common for people who excel in certain areas or, or children who excel in certain areas to lag behind in others? I, I have friends who have kids and they'll say, oh, he's, you know, he's reading way above his grade level, but he's struggling in math or something like that. Is, is, that a, is it common um, you know, in, in either group for, for one area to exceed and another to fall behind like that? Yeah, you know, the concept of asynchronous brain development and <laughs> human development really right. hits on that. And that's kind of a, a center feature on that is um, that we don't develop uniformly, that the right. brain is developing out of sync and certain areas are going to be overdeveloped, which are going to be in your strengths areas. And we only have a limited amount of ability to grow with our right. skull, right. um, that things are just going to take a little bit longer to develop, um, depending on, um, puberty. Um, we know there's a massive, um, brain, brain growth happening between ages nine through 14. Um, and it still continues to grow. And so I think that, um, you know, when you're thinking about a child, um, it would only make sense that they are going to have these asynchronies. And so for you as a parent or, or an educator or an uncle or an aunt, um, to really help guide them um, in their strengths areas and then bring in supports where they are having challenges. Right. And, and beyond just uh, sort of that pigeonholing of, of, of kids to say, you know, well, you're a great reader, but he struggles in math and we're, we're going to put them into a category or something like that. I, I believe you touched on in your book that there's also sometimes that social, that, that sort of, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here is it, but that social aspect of it, of that you take a kid who's doing great in one area, but then you put them on say like an, an IEP plan and then they feel sort of a, a social isolation because now they're othered in that sense that they're, you know, they may be exceptional in certain areas, but because they're struggling in math, now they need to go to some program. And now it feels weird because, you know, well, none of my friends are in this program and all that. And uh, my best friend, when I was talking about doing this interview with him the other day, he said the same thing. He said, you know, I was a kid who, who was really ahead in a lot of ways, but then in order to pursue those strengths, the education system would have put him in a place where he was would have, you know, been removed from his friends and been removed from a lot of other important aspects of, of his life at that time. And so he never pursued it. You know, is that, is that something that, that you feel we don't do a good job as that even when somebody's being, I guess, appreciated for, for the, the parts of their development that are, that are above say baseline levels that we don't do a good job of sort of insulating them from, from these residual sort of social, aspects that, that may be lost by putting them into a separate program or putting them into a different spot? Yeah, no, I think you're um, saying a lot that is at the challenge and at the heart of education um, that we struggle with currently. Um, because the first thing is, is that when you see a child who could excel in an area, the natural thing is, is to want to excel them. Yeah. And the first thing 
that kind of happens with these kids is they get pigeonholed where one, they're kind of forced into that gift where they may like math, but they may enjoy drawing more. And, you know, they're being told, oh, you need to be a mathematician or an architect or something like that. And, you know, they actually, you know, want to do computer programming and design or or something like that. And so we can sometimes pigeonhole a child based on their gift and kind of overpopulate them with activities to build that strength. And we may not ask them, is this what you want to do? The second thing that, pardon me, that I talk about is um, deficit learning, that sometimes we are so focused on telling the child all the things that need to be fixed about them that we miss their natural strengths and they're taken for granted and they kind of grow up feeling that they're never enough. And then you have like the third category that you're addressing that sometimes these excess programs can cause social isolation because they're in pullout programs and they're not with their natural classmates. And so then they're missing that nat- that social emotional connection that is such an integral part of developing children right. um, and adults. And so, I mean, you kind of think about it. I mean- I don't work in an office, but if you're working in an office, you know, and people get pulled out on certain projects and maybe you enjoy working with Sam and Sam isn't in your group because they're not reading at your level, um, then, you know, and you're with somebody else and perhaps you could have had a a more synergistic kind of group. And so sometimes, um, you know, one thing that I love, um, that, um, my provost at Bridges um, Graduate School um, does, Dr. Baum, she really focuses on when she puts groups together to have people be certain roles in the group based on their strengths to build that group. So even if you have those asynchronies, um, that they help build one another naturally. Um, And at the same time, also to come out of your comfort zone. So, you know, you don't want to teach a child to have aversion for an area that they're challenged with. You want them to investigate and inquire and um, not totally shun off from it because it, that could be, you know, maladaptive for their development where they could learn things are hard. I don't ever want to do it. And, and sometimes, In jobs, we have to do things that are hard, that don't come easy to us. We sometimes have to do things that are boring. Um, And so the other piece is giving the child the why. You know, a lot of them need to know the why so they can thrive. And um, when you give them that, you know, like you have to write your name on your paper because you won't get credit um, versus like, this is the order and this is the law. You know, if you give them the reason why they may not, some of them may not care and they may <laughs> still say I'm outright my name. In that right. case, you're like, all right, let's get a stamp. Um, you know, <laughs> you got to think of these workarounds, right? right. Um, so yeah, I, I think we, we do struggle with that quite a bit. All right, we're going to take a break here. I know we really got into it, and Dr. Tetro has so much more wisdom to share. We're going to hear some quick messages from some friends in the podcast community. But in the second half of the episode, 
imposter syndrome, anxiety, our inability to accept praise, and our tendencies to focus on the negative. Also, meditation and some solutions to start to create better habits. There's a whole lot of good stuff coming up in the second half, so stick around. Resorted Goods will be right back. Hi, my name is Sean Landry, hopeful executive director of the Ledge Theater. What's the Ledge Theater? Well, the Ledge Theater is a operated and owned African-American hopeful theater in Los Angeles, California. A full theater filled with music and dance and laughter. Our goal with the Ledge is to have some of the best teachers and instructors of color and from everywhere teach at our theater. So if you're interested in making this dream come true for African-Americans and people of color and the LGBTQI community that have a space where all of us can perform and play, go to our website at www.thelegetheater.com and hit us up on our Kickstarter. Twenty-four hours is like three weeks. Wookies, <laughs> 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 uh, lasers, Death Star. <laughs> so slugs up your butt is bad. Is that what was gleaned from this? Hi, we're the Culture Quest podcast. We're on a quest to become more cultured people by discussing a movie, a music album, a book, or anything else really. Each episode, check us out: culturequestpodcast.com. Do you read books? Do you live by small bodies of water surrounded by trees and other wildlife? Is that geese shit? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you have found a home here at the Brook Reading Podcast. Each week, I read a book while nestled in my small New Jersey apartment and gaze out the window at a brook. Then I jump online, talk about it, ask for your opinions, and bitch about something for approximately five minutes. If you would like to join this madness, Check out the Brook Reading Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or on the Radio Public app. Let's step into some animal feces together. And now, continuing on with my conversation with Dr. Nicole Tetro. Now, the, the one thing that I absolutely have to ask you about, because you talked about it in your book, and because you talked about it on, on Jeff's podcast, For the Trees, which, which I am wearing a shirt of his, is uh, as an homage because he's he's the reason why we're even doing this interview but the concept of the impossible cool t-shirt by the way good thank merch you. thank you i know right <laughs> jeff's got the best merch over there great shirt. it is a great shirt by the way i love it it's, it's wonderful but the idea of the imposter syndrome which Oof. the people us here in our in our podcast and world we all claim to have it and we all claim to deal with it all the time and uh, I, I, I tend to believe that we're all telling the truth about it. So diving into the imposter syndrome, the first thing I have to ask is, is it seems like it's too simplistic a term for something that, that has to be more complicated than, than just a simple label like that. So can, can you explain what actually is the imposter syndrome and, and how does it work and, and what sort of characterizes it? Yeah, so it was first studied by Pauline Clance and Susan Ames, where they looked at um, women who were highly, um, I, I would say that they were highly successful, okay. um, lawyers, doctors, um, they were, um, you know, graduate students, teachers, um, and what they found was many of them felt they didn't deserve the success that 
they had. They right. felt that the underlying feeling was feeling unworthy for their successes and feeling that they were a fake or a fraud. Right. And they originally thought it was only in females. And then they did the study in males and they found it was as equal in females and in males and that it was in about 70% of the population. And after writing it, she really wanted to make it the imposter experience rather than syndrome, because it's not something that somebody feels 24 seven, it could have a sudden onset, you know, um, it could, you know, perhaps you feel very confident one day and you do something a thousand times, and then it's the thousand and one time, I don't, I'm not deserving of this. And I feel like a fraud. Um, and so those are like the common sayings that people have for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And people fall into like five different main categories for it. And so when you're in these imposter experiences, um, you can really, um, talk yourself out of your true abilities and it's, and it kind of causes a, um, low, kind of a low level, um, lack of faith in yourself. Now you have, uh, I just wanted to share this one, this one quote about it because I had to highlight it. So I'll just read this straight from your book here. Uh, the opening of your imposter syndrome, uh, portion of the book you wrote, uh, the voice of the imposter monster feeds a negativity wheel spinning through thoughts, stories, and messages of uncertainty, telling you that you are a fake phony and a fraud undeserving of your success undeserving of your accomplishments, undeserving of being the full expression of yourself and minimizing your essence. And I, I feel that is a pretty accurate representation of what, of what that sort of feels like, that, that exactly, exactly that aspect. And I know you discussed this with Jeff on his show. I, I believe it was my question as well, who you may have discussed, but part of that imposter syndrome, at least for what it feels like for me at times, that experience is the inability to to be praised and to accept the the compliments like if somebody if somebody listens to an episode of my show and tells me i didn't like it or leaves a bad review of the show i it, that that will eat at my brain for for i don't even know how long sometimes and if a thousand people <laughs> tell me i did great it's mostly a well yeah thanks uh, i don't know it, it, so what is it about the the wiring that we have that does that? Well, there's a lot to unpack. And <laughs> um, the first thing I want to say is, you know, I think the imposter experience perhaps may be prevalent in, um, in podcasters because they are interviewers. And so they have a series of experts on all the time. And so <laughs> they're looking at an expert for all the answers when even sometimes innately they're asking the question leading them there um, and say, you don't give yourself enough credit for the synergy of the actual conversation that happens, right? You need both to make it a process. You know, I mean, if I were asking my own questions and answering them, I think people would get really bored. <laughs> that's like the normal episodes of my show, really. That's that's what I yeah, do. Yeah, but so. that's it. Essays are very different. Right. And I think that it's a it's a different process. And you know, what you were talking about, um, that we have so unfortunate it prevalent in our culture. And actually, this is actually an area of 
interest in research that I am currently investigating now okay. um, that I find fascinating um, is called the negativity bias. That basically scientists, um, scientists say that we have a negativity bias based on our hardwiring for our survival. And that basically we hold negative experiences and emotions um, in our memory much more strongly due to um, keeping us safe and out of danger. Now, so in modern day psychology, why would our thoughts <laughs> kind right. of, why would our thoughts do that to us? And I think that's really different because, you know, when you have something that's based on your survival, um, that's a standard, you know, lion out in, um, let's say out in the, the desert, right? right? Whereas now our biggest challenges are the thoughts we have in our mind where they're, they're these imaginary lions. And I kind of argue that we've been socialized to have a negativity bias from a very young age that we haven't been taught to say, I'm good at this. I've done that well. Because if we do, we're socialized as a, you're, we're taught, we're a bragger, we're full of ourselves. And I think that we really do children a disservice by not teaching them at a very young age to call in what they're good at and, and feeling that success. Um, we also know that the work from Rick Hansen, um, a meditation teacher, that he talks about taking in the good. So an exercise for you to practice is that the next time somebody says, you did a great podcast, I really enjoyed it, you helped me, to take a pause connect where it feels right in your body. Maybe it's your shoulder, maybe it's your hand, maybe it's your heart and say, thank you. And kind of relive and reimagine that experience that somebody's telling you where you can create a neural pattern that's long lasting of positive thoughts and processes. So it's, it's essentially, I need to, or anybody needs to train yourself to accept that you can't just suddenly be like, well, oh, I feel great about this, that we actually need to sort of blaze those trails in our own brains to, to actually learn how to appreciate that it's, it, it's sort of a skill to develop accepting praise is sort of, sort of a trainable concept in ourselves that we can do. Is that, is that what I'm sort of devising from that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that it's a, it's a, it's a, a practice. Is right. a practice to recognize the positivity that thank you. Right. Thank you. Um, you know, and really kind of embody it rather than slough it off because right. we're so quickly to slough it off um, because some people don't like the attention as well. You know, attention feels a little overwhelming and um, and at the same time, when you're with another person, you see their humanity and you see right. the, level of equality within each of you. So, um, but if you could recognize your specialness, then you can be so much better at recognizing others. Right. Um, so it's kind of a, a positive synergy that you can kind of develop for yourself. Excellent. That, that's I, excellent news. <laughs> and I also think, you know, when those negativity thoughts come in to say, oh, here you are again. Okay. I, I've, I know what you are. I don't have to thank you. You could go away now, yeah. you know, and just invite those thoughts to go away. Um, 
and, and, you know, when I have kind of persistent negative thoughts, you know, I, I say, well, what's the opposite? How could I bring in the counter to that? And can I call, can I train my brain to think about activating the positive imagination? Um, and the reason why that works is that when we imagine something versus when we actually experience it, our brain doesn't know the difference. And so if we imagine the positive experience, then we're kind of juicing our brain, right? For that, where vice versa, if we're imagining the negative, then we're going to be, you know, kind of depleting our brain. Is this sort of a learned thing? Really? We, we, it's, we've learned maybe much more easily to, to focus on that negativity, sort of a, sort of a remnant of the evolution of our sort of threat assessment, but we haven't learned yet to accept praise is that, you know, this is, is it a learned behavior that we can fix? I think is, is to, to give sort of hope <laughs> to myself or listeners or anybody. I think it's a learned behavior that we can't, I think that there are actual threats, right? Like we, right. we just got out of a pandemic. <laughs> yes. So there were yeah. definite things that you don't want to be like, everything's fine and not wearing a mask. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, and so for sure, on those sort of things, you know, the awareness is critical. And I think it's really honing in on where is the awareness of these negative feeling coming from, you know, and when you can identify that, oh, this is just a thought that I have in my head. It's not a truth. I am a good podcaster. You know, I made people laugh and, and really, you know, the other thing, um, that we forget to do about training ourselves is I had a a great mentor, Sam Christensen, who I talk about a lot in the book. And he taught us anytime someone gives you a compliment, cut it out and put it up and really look at it, you know? And, um, and I started doing that and I started to see that, okay, that there are things that I'm doing that, that are worthwhile, (laughs) you know? Um, and, and to recognize that um, at the same time, too, regardless of getting a compliment or not, how does it feel inside of you? Right. When you're doing your podcast, are you enjoying it? Are you in flow? And that's what matters most, because when you're in that, people want to be a part of it. Right. They see this guy's he's he's coming into who he is and he's sharing who he is. That's helping me identify who I am. Right. Whether they, whether you know it or not, when you create something, you're, you, you, that sort of shines through. It's something that I've tried to learn over the past few years as I've started to do new creative things is that exactly that, that, that being, being authentic in, in what you do and doing it because you love to do it is something that shines through and that people can sense that, you know, they can sense whatever you create. If you're creating it just because just for whatever, because you want to make, you want to be famous or you want to, so that shows as much as somebody who's doing it with authenticity and with, and with sort of a, a real love of what they're doing. It, it always seems to be evident whether it's, it's obvious or not. It's something people just can tell whether or not you're, you're phoning it in or you're faking it or, or whatever the case is. So uh, it, now I, I, I wanted to get to anxiety as well, because the, the one, term that you that gets used a lot in your book is that anxiety is the fear of fear which i never heard it 
described like that before. And I never really thought of it quite like that before. And as somebody who is a very anxious person, it, it really was such a simple way to, to remind myself as well. Exactly that, you know, you, you also state we have 60,000 thoughts a day, which is, <laughs> I, I don't even know how that's possible, but it sounds right for me at the very least. So, you know, in terms of something like anxiety and, and that fear of fear and the, the, your, your hyperactive mind and the way you can sort of create situations to be worse than they really are, uh, you know, what are some, from, from your perspective, what are some aspects of anxiety that maybe an anxious person needs to, to think of it as? Is, is, is there sort of a different perspective you can offer on just the basic idea of, of, of being an anxious person and, and how our minds are working? Yeah, so um, that's a really important question. Um, well, anxiety is, um, you know, I mean, when you think about people being primed for anxiety, you know, we know that just as different parts of our brains develop, we develop circuitry in relation to processing our emotions. And some people tend to be more um, in tune with their kind of emotional storytelling um, and the patterns that they've experienced. And anxiety is really like anything, it's, it's a practice in a lot of ways. When I talk about it's a fear of fear, um, because what it is, it's really activating the imagination, um, based on the worst case scenario. And, and it's feeding that over and over and over. And when you practice that over and over and over, your mind doesn't know anywhere else to go. And, you know, my, that goes back to Sam, Sam and I were once sitting and I said, you know, um, sometimes when I speak, I get anxious. And he said, well, Nicole, if you didn't get anxious, that meant you didn't care. The fact that you care is why you're a little nervous. I would be worried if you weren't, you know, and I think that we forget that there, that some types of anxiety are actually, good for us, you know, um, if you're, you know, and we also forget too, that there's this kind of alignment between anxiety and excitement that sometimes we can be excited and we can misidentify that as anxiety. Right. And so it goes back to what are the thoughts you're feeding yourself, you know? And if you're like, if, if, and you, and to recognize that you could be both anxious and anxiety and have, you could have anxiety and be excited and you could attach to being excited rather than anxious. Um, and you know, a lot of what I talk about in terms of anxiety is to understand your default patterning. Um, you know, some people who are anxious, you could fall into four different categories. You could fall into fight, flight, freeze, or flop. Right. And if you can identify here, I am, I have to keep moving. I'm anxious that way. You could recognize, okay, this is my pattern. What am I actually ner- What, what is causing me the anxiety? And if you could identify the trigger, you can maybe step back from the edge. The other the, the freeze and flop, those individuals kind of dissociate and, and don't want to do anything. And they kind of zone out. 
And for that, it's, you have to get a different type of inertia. But the most important thing is that when people are feeling anxious, they're not feeling safe. And so what is going to bring you back to feeling safe is the first thing. Um, and then identifying what is the actual trigger for the anxiety. Um, and then a series of, of different techniques like meditation, therapeutic writing, talk therapy, um, are a number of ways that can, um, help individuals kind of move through that. Right. That, that, uh, what you just said there about sort of reevaluating the feeling is, is something that I, I actually, and I believe I got it from reading your book, but the past couple of weeks, I had something like that as well, where there was sort of an anxious situation. And I, I, I tried to think of it that way, that if, you know, that, that feeling that, you know, butterflies in your stomach or the, you know, that little jump in your chest or whatever you're feeling it, it I always immediately draw it to, to negative, something negative. This is, this is, uh, an anxiety inducing situation. And I'm on it, the, the uncomfortable feeling can only be because of a negative emotion, right. Or a negative situation. And then I thought, but that's the same feeling I might feel on a roller coaster where, you know, I might be terrified, but that, that feeling is the exact same as being uh, thrilled or, or being, you know, it, it being able to, to experience something that, that you've never felt before there, there is, I, I like what you said about that, that there's sort of the two sides of it, that that anxiety is also an excitement that, that you may be anxious, but that's also a natural feeling of, of experiencing something new. And that one of the techniques I've, I think I'm trying to learn and I, and I've learned it from your writing and all that is exactly that, that if I'm feeling anxious about something, it's also an opportunity to feel a little bit excited because that nervous feeling is a, is also the thrill of, of something new and that there's a new sort of perspective. I, I feel like to, to get around that, that, you know, being an anxious person, sometimes you can think anything that feels uncomfortable is anxiety, right? That, you know, I just started, you know, I go to a new job and the job is tough and I'm nervous, but is it just because this is a bad situation or is it just because this is a new experience and that this is what a new experience feels like and, and to, uh, to, I guess, sort of identify it as something that it's going to feel the same, but just to look at it as, you know, this isn't a negative thing. This is actually, this is the feeling of excitement, of anticipation, of, of something positive is, is an aspect of, of, I guess, dealing with it that I, that I have tried to come around to a little bit, if that makes sense. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> and um, the other thing that I want to say about that too, is that anxiety, we fall on old patterns. So sometimes we put anxiety where it doesn't belong right. because it's just a behavior that we've repeated and a story we re repeated. And when you kind of come at it from a new angle, that this is a new moment, I'm in this process and, and exactly what you're saying, like, a new job is going to be exciting and have some aspects of nervousness to it. And at the same time, you're also coming out of a pandemic and you're learning new socialization. Right. And, right. and so kind of looking at the waves. And I think that the important thing with an emotion that you're experiencing is to really allow it to be a wave, you know, and to recognize it has a beginning, middle, 
and end, and it's never going to last. And that you could call in joy just as quickly as you can call in anxiety, just as quickly as you could call in gratitude. And I think that's something that, um, when we recognize, you know, and, and at the same time, I don't want to minimize, you know, some emotions do tell us things about things that need to change. You know, if you're in your seat and you're physically uncomfortable and you're in pain and it hurts, that's a signal to your body, your physiology. I need to get up and adjust my chair. I need to stretch my back. Um, and so I think the thing is, is that we've put emotions in categories of good and bad, and they're actually information to help us navigate through the world. Right. Right. That's, you know, I, I was just thinking about it here, you know, thinking about sort of that scenario that like, I never rode, I, I never liked roller coasters growing up. And then in my mid twenties, I went to a theme park and I got on the biggest one. And it was, it was, I remember the feeling of, of, the anxiety going up and then the anticipation and then the drop and the whole experience. And I came out of it and I thought, I never want to do that again, ever. No, not for me. No, don't want to feel that. And then as the years have gone by, I thought, I bet everyone around me had that same feeling, except for them, it was, this is awesome. And, and I can only feel something this exhilarating here. And, and to sort of identify that, that I feel danger, I feel almost in danger, right? That the, the, the heart jump and all that stuff and going that fast makes me feel like I'm in danger and I don't want to be in this scenario, but to identify it as also, but you are safe. We're all safe in this setting. And and what you're feeling is actually an exhilaration and not a, a danger, you know, to identify those thought patterns is something that I think as I'm getting older is an aspect of my life. I'm trying to change a little bit. Is that something that we can really do is, is sort of harness the feelings we already have and, and recategorize them within ourselves? Absolutely. Um, you could recategorize, tell yourself a new story. You could change your dialogue, your inner dialogue, I think is really powerful. And I think there's also a piece, um, that we know scientifically of offering yourself compassion, um, and to also place it and say, well, okay, I just went on a roller coaster and it's pretty normal if my heart is about to explode um, (laughs) because that's not normal, like to experience that. And that's okay. And it's also okay to say that's not for me. Right. You know, um, just because you're, you're trying to reframe things, it doesn't mean that you have to do everything. You could say little steps like you're saying, you know, The thing is, will the enjoyment of the yoga class outlast my ideas of not wanting to do yoga in front of other people? Right. And the truth of the matter is no one's looking at you. So if you could recognize and say, yeah, no one really is looking at me. And, you know, if you don't want the teacher to touch you, you say, don't touch me, you know, like people could have all various ways of feeling about it. And Go ahead. No, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, the other thing too, that you have to recognize is yoga in itself. You know, a lot of people don't recognize, like there's a lot of vulnerable positions people are put into. Um, And so if you're an anxious person, it could actually activate more anxiety, you know, and that's what I talk about with um, 
meditation as well. You know, if, if you're telling somebody to breathe and like the breath in itself is not an anchor and is not an access point, you could be re-traumatizing somebody. So you have to be really conscientious, um, that the type of class you go to feels like it's at your level that the teacher has a trauma informed lens, you know? And so I think that, um, you know, I think that absolutely telling yourself new stories because they are stories that we've told ourselves. And I think there's also that compassion. Like I like to do things alone too. And I'm okay with that. Like, like you don't, it's good to absolutely build a new muscle and try new things. And it's okay too to say, this isn't for me or this is for me. Right. And, uh, the, the last area that I wanted to touch on with you is, you know, cause you mentioned it a bunch of times and, and I think it's very important as well is meditation. And, you know, it's something that I've, I've tried in my life. It's not something I, I have been very good at actively keeping up with us as the years have gone on. Uh, you know, you, you're a meditation teacher, you're, you're an advocate for, for, you know, using it to, to help better yourself, which I think is the point of, of meditation is to sort of work on yourself from the inside out is always how it's always felt to me is it's sort of, it's sort of going into the workshop deep inside yourself and, and sort of working from in inside out like that. But, you know, for people who haven't tried meditation, because I, I find for, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's difficult to, to slow yourself down like that, but sort of, you know, what, what sort of guidance do you have for people if they're thinking about it or, or what sort of, you know, I guess, recommendation of, of, of how to get into meditation for people who are maybe hesitant or, or worry that they just can't do that kind of thing, or, or they worry they can't shut their brains off. What are some good sort of baby steps to, to get people maybe even just integrating small pieces of it into their daily lives? Yeah. Well, one of the smallest um, exercises, easiest exercises you could do a couple is one um, is a form of meditation, which is called mindful awareness and, and mindfulness comes from insight meditation practices, um, which centers the mind on focusing of being in mindful presence for what is. And that sounds like a lot. Um, but what it is, is that basically when you're breathing, you're breathing. Yeah. When you're reading, you're reading. When you're speaking, you're speaking and so on and so forth. Um, when you're smelling the roses, you're smelling the roses. And, um, the easiest thing you could do when that moment of overwhelm or heaviness comes in is to take three um, deep diaphragmic breaths. We know that um, the breath re-regulates the nervous system um, and specifically three very deep belly breaths allows it to um, activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which is called the rest and digest nervous system. Um, And it allows for relaxation where you get vasodilation, you know, kind of that openness and spaciousness all throughout your body, as well as activating a nerve, um, that regulates your autonomic nervous system called the vagus nerve. And that releases positive neurochemicals like oxytocin and vasopressin. And what those are, those are trust molecules, um, 
They're found in infant pair bonding. They're found in partner bonding. And those are the molecules that make you feel good and safe and that you're in trust. Um, and so that's a very simple practice of just breathing deeply. Um, another kind of simple way to get you into meditation, if sitting there doesn't feel in the moment accessible and just shutting your mind off is to take a mindful walk. So walk outside, step in your neighborhood, step into nature and be present with your surroundings of walking and you're walking, um, as taking in trees and taking in the sky. Um, we know that when we naturally connect to nature, that calms our nervous system. And again, opens up that spaces spaciousness. Um, and then finally one practice it's, um, a bit more of an advanced practice, but it's at the cornerstone of, of, um, heartful awareness is to develop a, um, compassion practice, um, centered on, you know, may I bring compassion to myself? May I bring compassion to you? May I have compassion for this report that's due tomorrow? (laughs) You know, um, whatever it is, is where can you find the softening, um, in your daily life, um, where there doesn't feel so resistant, um, and to bring that in. And so, um, those are, you know, kind of very simple, um, kind of distilled down pieces of it. Um, and for individuals who are like, okay, I'll, I'll take the attempt to sit down and, and meditate. Um, you know, when I started to meditate, I came at it and I'll just tell you a personal story. Um, it was after I finished graduate school and I finished my PhD and, um, I had my dream job to go to, um, Chicago and work in a postdoc and work in Parkinson's human brain tissue. Concurrently, my mother passed away that year. Um, three months after I finished of Parkinson's disease, the reason why I went into being a scientist. And I, really hit a very, very deep existential crisis where my whole life was built on the hope of science. And, um, and I transitioned and I decided that I really wanted to communicate science, um, to people who needed it the most rather than doing primary research. Um, but in that deep, um, kind of reimagining of myself with the loss of my mother, I found meditation Yeah. and it, and in the very big stages, early stages, you know, I didn't sit all the time. I lied down um, because that's what my body needed. My body needed rest. Um, and so we have these very rigid ideas of what it is to meditate. Mm Um, and, in that beginning, you know, I would lie down and do a meditation and maybe my mind was gone 80% of the time, but 20% of the time it was there. Um, and that's what meditation is about. It's bringing yourself back to the present moment, um, and to get you out of the thinking mind. Um, and so, 
you know, it's a process and I still meditate. And there's some days where I sit and, you know, it's a very conducive sit other times, you know, it feels like I didn't meditate at all. Um, and, and it's a process and it's a muscle and, um, and there's layers within meditation. You think you have finished something and it comes back up for you to relearn. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, for me, meditation really brought in that safety and, and at the same time, you know, um, Dan, you know, I have my own level of, um, fears and anxiety, and it has helped me substantially, um, soften and reduce, um, the inner voices and the inner fears. And, and, um, and so it's, it's probably one of the best ways that I know how to regulate my nervous system. Right. Right. And it's the one thing that, you know, you're in control of when you, when you do it, you, you choose to sort of pursue that, that, that part of your life. And I, and I, I mean, I always found when I've, you know, I go through phases where, you know, I get into it and then I fall out of it and I think, well, you know, I'm okay right now. I don't, I don't, I don't need to meditate so much and all that, but exactly that. It, it, it feels almost like you're opening the workshop up anytime I get into it. It's like, okay, if I feel too anxious or there's things going on in my life to, to get into meditation again, it's like, okay, let me pull the toolbox out because I need to go, I need to go tinker under the hood here and, and, and find out what's going on and see if I can sort of exactly that soften the soften it or, or I, or be able to identify it. And, and I, I am the furthest thing in the world from, from well-versed in meditation. But if anybody ever asked me about it, I, I a hundred percent say, give it a try because, because when it's worked for me, it's been quite literally life-changing really. And, and is there anything that, you know, in terms of meditation for, for, you know, two individuals or, or, you know, uh, anybody who's, who's very uniquely neurodiverse like that, is there an aspect of, of meditation that can factor in for them? That's, that's more beneficial for them or, or any sort of way that that sort of works in? Yeah. I mean, I think for anybody, um, you know, cause anxiety I talk about as being part of 2E as well, um, in the sense that, um, it's the way your brain is primed. Um, and often if you're twice exceptional being outside of the box, has you feel that otherness. Um, and one thing that meditation does do is it rewires the mind, um, where it reduces biases, um, of others. And it also kind of brings in the concept of oneness where people don't feel so alone. Um, and so, you know, I think part of being one in five, you sometimes don't feel like you're fully integrated with everybody. So it, it kind of brings in that positive aspects of being part of something bigger than yourself. Right. Right. I think everybody, whatever category you, you may find yourself in feels something of that regard, sooner or later, which, uh, you know, it's, it's an absolutely, uh, it's a great practice. I, I, I think everybody should at least try it. So, you know, Hey, anybody who's listening, you didn't hear from me. I'm, I'm just me. There's the expert <laughs> advocates for, for meditation and, you know, Dr. Tetra, you, you, you know, more about, about the brain than anybody who's come near this podcast before. So, <laughs> um, you know, is there, is there anything else you, are there any other topics or is there any sort of imparting wisdom you want to share before, before we wrap up here or anything on your mind or something you want to share with the listeners? No, I mean, I think, uh, you don't have to be a brain scientist to know that 
uh, meditation can be that neurosurgery, <laughs> that positive <laughs> surgery for yourself. And, um, it's really accessible to anybody, um, if they're willing. And at the same time, um, you know, the good news about it is like, there's nothing about meditation. Like it's not, there's no competition. There's nothing, yeah. you know, and it gets you out of that. You can't do meditating wrong or bad. Right. Um, it's it, the only thing is, is it, it it's good for you. I, I can't stress this enough to my listeners. Uh, the book is insight into a bright mind, a neuroscientist's personal stories of unique thinking. My guest here this episode, Dr. Nicole Tetro. Did I do it? Am I saying it right? Can you can you give it to me if I'm not saying it right? You're saying it great. Perfect. You're Canadian. It's Perfect. French Canadian. You got say, it. When you get that E A U L thing, you get that in the name here. Us Canadians, we know. We've been in class before. We've seen that before. So again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, it is the book is absolutely fantastic. I really mean that. Uh, do you have anything? Can you tell tell people where they can find you? Anything you want to plug for, for the listeners to, to divert them to, to somewhere else afterwards? No, I mean, thank you so much for having me. It's been a true pleasure and honor to get to know you and hear some of your stories and vulnerability and your less, your listeners are really lucky to have you. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, you can, um, uh, find my book, uh, wherever books are sold. So have fun. Please buy it folks. <laughs> yeah and taking that compliment dan right. you know write it out say, i was gonna say i'm gonna take the moment to, to just just do the little feel it feel it and and try to try to take it with me all right that's all for this episode of assorted goods i really hope you enjoyed this episode and the conversation we were able to have please go out and buy dr tetro's book insight into a bright mind i can't keep sucking up to this book enough it, it is a really great read with a lot of ideas that I believe people should think about when it comes to the human brain, especially in young and gifted people. You can find Insight into a Bright Mind wherever you buy your books. I'll even turn a blind eye if you buy it off Amazon. Just this once, though. I want to thank Dr. Tetro again one more time. And if you enjoyed this episode or you felt like you got something of value out of it, I hope you'll share it with a friend or even subscribe to Assorted Goods yourself. You can also follow Assorted Goods on Twitter at Assorted Goods PC. Or find the podcast on Instagram, if that's your thing, at Assorted Goods Pod. And of course, check out the podcast website, assortedgoodspod.com, where you can hit me up through the contact page or check out past episodes, source lists for the writing of the show, and even a few bits of writing I've done myself out there in the world. Hope you'll find it all useful too. Thanks again for listening and taking the time. Hope you have a good one out there. Take a minute to appreciate something good today, and I'll see you next episode here on Assorted Goods.
This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness.